Hello everyone, and welcome back to EHS on Tap. We hope that you all had a safe and healthy holiday season and a great start to 2019. We certainly are all ready to go with a new year of expert guests delivering best practices and insights into the environment, health, and safety industry. I'm your host, Justin Scase, Senior Editor of the EHS Daily Advisor and Safety Decisions Magazine. Now, the threat from workplace violence is very real, and employers simply can't afford to ignore it. Hopefully, you already have a workplace violence prevention program in place, and if not, you're steadily working toward implementing one. The issue is multifaceted, touching upon everything from active shooters to coworker conflicts to domestic violence spillover. Now our guest on today's episode is here to talk about another angle of the problem that you may not have considered. We're talking about the intersection of workplace violence with another common organizational concern, substance abuse. Joining us today on EHS on Tap is Patrick Prince, the Associate Vice Provost and Chief Threat Assessment Officer for the University of Southern California. In addition to his role at USC, Patrick is a standing member of corporate threat assessment teams for several Fortune 500 companies, as well as numerous cities and government agencies. He has consulted on more than 2,800 cases dealing with a wide array of situations, ranging from intimidation, harassment, and verbal threats, to physical assaults, acts of sabotage, felony stalking, discharging firearms in the workplace, and even on-the-job homicide. Patrick will be presenting an educational session, Substance Abuse and Workplace Violence, Understanding the Impact and Addressing the Risk, at BLR's upcoming 2019 Workplace Violence Prevention Symposium, taking place March 14th through 15th in San Antonio, Texas. So Patrick, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about what you do as Associate Vice Provost and Chief Threat Assessment Officer at USC. Uh, what sorts of risks are you on the lookout for? Well, my job in general is to provide uh, proactive, uh, collaborative oversight and support throughout the university. We have to identify, assess potential risk, and, and manage threats and or threatening behavior mm -hmm. that might lead to acts of targeted violence. So my role is to assist the university across all elements um, to hopefully identify problems before they become overwhelming, mm -hmm. to craft intervention opportunities, and to resolve issues and hopefully then prevent violence from occurring within our community. Okay, great. So what are some, uh, what are some key warning signs that indicate the potential for a workplace violence incident? Well, first, let me, let me uh, reframe my, my position a little bit in as much as I've been at USC sure. now for almost two years. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, I spent over 25 years working with corporate entities, identifying potential violence, responding to incidents, and one of the great challenges we have is that when we talk about workplace violence, there are, there are different sources, and each source really has a different uh, way of presenting itself. Mm -hmm. For example, we can go back as far as 1993, when OSHA first started publishing on this, and OSHA identified, I think it's actually published in 94, type 1, 2, 3, 4. These are the, uh -huh. the potential sources of violence, type 1, the criminal, the person has no relationship. Right. We now look for vulnerabilities for exposure. Do we have money? Do we have exposure to the public? 
Um, do we have uh, opportunities for people to enter into our arenas? And so what we look for there are, are vulnerabilities for mostly criminal or other folks who may come into the environment and take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. Typically, however, when most folks talk about workplace violence, they're looking at what OSHA has identified as, as type three, and that's coworker violence. Mm. And really what's fascinating, I think, is statistically, people are much more exposed to type one outsider violence, the mm. external, than they are internal. Mm-hmm. But in sur- survey after survey, we ask folks in workplaces in different in industries, when you hear about workplace violence, who are you most afraid of? And the answer almost always comes back to the, the coworker, the current or former coworker. Mm. So when we look at that person, it's fundamentally different than type one. Frankly, type four is the domestic violence which comes in, and that's a whole other set of, of presentation, if you will. Mm-hmm. But at least for the next few minutes, we'll just focus on, on the, the most uh, popular or the most uh, concerning, that's coworker violence. Okay. And you really look at a person who acts in, in, a, in, in a hostile uh, result, uh, res, uh, they, they pull themselves out of the situation. They, they don't participate meaningfully, they're angry. Um, if I were to look at maybe the top five indicators that I'm looking for, and again, it, it doesn't make sense to only look at five, but you look at typically the person who, who's got that simmering anger. Mm-hmm. If they're not angry, they're going to get angry. And they get angry because they take everything personally, mm. internalize it. Um, one of the, the great authors in our line of business, a guy named Reed Malloy, has called them uh, injustice collectors. Mm. I actually call them injustice initiators. They'll create conflict, they'll ruminate, they'll obsess, and in the process, they'll start to develop that sense of I've been done wrong, that victimhood. Mm. So what I really pay attention to are, are indications of, of distress. Here, here's another fundamental challenge in our business. Mm-hmm. We often get really hung up on this notion of, did a person make a threat? Mm. And I'll tell you, if somebody makes a threat, it affects their coworkers, it affects everyone around them, it, it changes our relationship. You can't unring the threat bell, but we know from experience and statistics, most people who make threats never hurt anybody. Mm. Most people who hurt somebody never made a threat. Right. But everyone who hurt somebody acted in a threatening way. So when we really start to talk about potential indicators of, 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 of maybe uh, growing potential for violence, we look at angry, the injustice collecting and, and um, creating, uh, the blaming others, mm-hmm. the lack of ability to engage meaningfully in problem solving, a sense of desperation. Mm-hmm. Back in the old days, we used to call it helpless, hopeless, humiliated. Okay. Uh, but it's really, they, they tend to overreact to situations that we would otherwise I guess resolve fairly simply, but they just can't get over things. They hold on, they ruminate, they obsess. Those are kind of, you know, the, the, that's the, the throwing paint up against the wall answer. Okay. Clearly what we do is we, we come back and, and we'll, we'll, we'll dig through it more meaningfully. But in the workplace, we start to pay attention, not necessarily just to the folks who make threats, because they disrupt the workplace, mm-hmm. but people who act in an angry, hostile, aggressive, overreactive, personalized manner those are the folks that, that need to be on our radar. Okay. So your session at the upcoming uh, Workplace Violence Prevention Symposium is about the link between substance abuse and workplace violence. So how do these workplace violence warning signs that we've been discussing right now, how do they compare with substance abuse warning signs? Uh, how do they overlap? At, at, 
a fundamental level, they're almost indistinguishable. Uh, uh-huh. When we look at this pathway to violence, people don't just snap. They don't just come in and engage in horrific acts of, of, of damage, homicide. Mm-hmm. There is a buildup. Now, sometimes it's a fairly quick, maybe months. Mm-hmm. There's always the behavior. When we go back and look what people in my business call typically low-grade behavior, hostile, belligerent, argumentative, the, the uh, uh, threatening, intimidating. Um, in California, we actually, it's against the law to engage in or allow abusive conduct, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. When we look at that, those are very, very con- uh, consistent indicators of that low grade, but you can't go to high without passing through low. Mm. So now go back to substance abuse, belligerent, argumentative, overreacting, mm-hmm. intimidating, argumentative, they're virtually indistinguishable. Mm. As you mentioned, I've worked thousands of cases. I believe in my heart of hearts. I don't have the hard data, but I've got decades of experience. Mm-hmm. I truly believe that in a majority of my cases, maybe only 55 or 60, but I believe if the company had engaged in four-cause drug testing, had they addressed that kind of behavior, half of my case would go away. Mm. When I look at what generally brings me in the door, a fellow's threatening a coworker. He's getting in his face, mm-hmm. glaring at, staring down, intimidating. That's that's substance abuse behavior. Mm. And and at those levels, substance abuse and pathway to violence are indistinguishable. Mm. So let's intervene early. Mm. If we wait until there's an assault, if we wait until there's a a, a, a gross act, it's too late. Mm. I really believe that one of the most effective early workplace violence prevention tools we have is four-cause drug testing, Mm. because I truly believe well over half of the cases that everybody in my industry across the country, more than half of our cases are really substance use cases. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the ugly kind of underside. It's easier for a company to take action based on a positive drug test on an employee Mm -hmm. than to take action because an employee is scaring their coworkers. Mm. Let's just... Let's intervene where we have the opportunity. Let's use the tools that are available. Now, mind you, 45 or 50% are not going to be substances, but the vast majority, at least early on, are, are, are substance-related. Okay. So uh, one thing to consider, there are a lot of different substances out there. Uh, in your experience, does one type of drug abuse tend to predict violent outcomes more than others? You know, we're talking opioids versus stimulants uh, yeah. versus alcohol, or are they all just different shades of the same problem? Uh, yes and no. Mm. On one hand, I, I don't want to say we only worry about one substance because that would preclude paying attention to others and that, that, that would be foolish. Right. Having said that, I gave a talk in 19, oh my gosh, 89. Mm-hmm. Um, I was doing a training for a, a school district and their, the local police department had 500 cops and teachers. Mm-hmm. 1989, I said the worst drug I'd ever seen as, uh, is methamphetamine. Mm. And today, I will tell you, methamphetamine has more of an impact on our communities, on our families, on our health care system. We hear a great deal about opioid uh, problem right now, and it's, it's, a, right. it's a significant issue. Mm-hmm. It, it truly pales with meth. Mm. Having said that, meth is, 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 has to get attention. Alcohol and meth, at some level, the behaviors are very consistent. Hmm. The emotional outburst, the the over uh, angry types of response, the violent reactions. We know 
that, that alcohol, probably more than all the others, is related to interpersonal violence, mm. things like that. Mm-hmm. We, we've changed the way we live our lives because of things like alcohol, and, and I'm not a prohibitionist. I don't think organizations and companies <laughs> certainly should get in that business. Uh-huh. Think about it. We, we think twice about taking our kids to the local football games. Um, at, we think twice about going to parades. We think twice about doing things where there's going to be a lot of folks because they get together, people drink. We know there's going to be a fight. Hmm. We know there's going to be conflict. We, we just assume it in the outside world, and then when we see the same behaviors in the company, we somehow forget that link. Hmm. And so part of what we want to do is, is, is again, not make people overly cautious. We don't want to get in the business of, of being prohibitionist, but pay attention to what's right there, and let's use the right tool for the right job. Hmm. Drug testing is just a tool, but it's a really, really effective tool. Okay. So... I mean, now, not everyone who abuses substances is necessarily going to commit an act of violence. So um, what sort of factors, if they're different from the ones that we've already been talking about here, what, what factors might suggest that a substance abuser is more or less likely to become violent? So there's, there's again, every, every question, these are great questions, and they're not easily answered. First of all, right. when we look at the low, low levels of what I would call low-grade violence, argumentative, hostility, mm-hmm. defiance, okay. and substance use, they look very similar. Mm-hmm. Having said that, most folks who engage in substances, thank God, never have any problems. Uh, right. We have hundreds hundreds of millions of folks drink in this country, and thank God very, very few go on to violence. Mm-hmm. What I think happens is that the low grade, I can't really distinguish because it's that lowering of inhibitions. It's acting out impulsively. Low grade violence, substances, very, very consistent. Mm-hmm. As the person moves along, I truly don't believe at the at the high level of violence, where, where we look at the, the homicides, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, at least in the workplace, that that's substance related, because that's more of a psychological thing. Mm. If I come to work and kill my boss, mm. I know that only one of two things is going to happen. I'm dying or going to jail. Mm. That Everybody knows that. So when somebody comes in and still engages in that behavior, psychologically that's a big deal so i think at right. the higher levels of violence the, the much more extraordinary the psychological issues like depression are much more relevant mm. at least in the workplace so one of the things we look at then is is that desperation that substance abuse brings along for many folks substances are social mm. they, they bring people together for the long-term chronic abuser it alienates their family mm-hmm. it isolates them from their peers it creates financial devastation. Desperate people act out desperately. Mm-hmm. So the substance abuse, I think, directly contributes to low-grade violence. Somebody who's high is more likely to act out impulsively and aggressively. When we look at homicide, I think what's happened to substance abuse has been in the background and has eroded all those other protective factors that we would look for. Mm. And, and so, once again, substances may not cause the event, but they certainly contribute significantly. And it's that overwhelming isolation, mm. desperation, lack of resources, desperate people do desperate pe- things. And, and that's what we worry about with violence and substances. Okay. So we've talked about violence warning signs, substance abuse warning signs, and how they're pretty much indistinguishable, and uh, signals one may indicate you know, leading to the other. So how can employers successfully train their employees to be on the lookout for all of these things and report their observations to the right people? I think 
what we try to do is we empower our supervisors, reinforce mid-level management support of our supervisors to identify areas of concern. Um, one of the other things that, that I, I do is um, when I do substance abuse training, and I, I was very fortunate. I had you know, two roads converged many years ago. While I started doing work in the area of, of violence prevention, I was also approached by a sergeant of the Los Angeles Police Department, and they're creating a brand new program called the Drug Recognition Expert Program. Mm. I was brought on board, and I spent 25 years as a reserve officer with the Los Angeles Police Department training officers and how to identify people under the influence. Mm -hmm. We can take some of those basic elements. We don't necessarily look at the, the same kinds of things that a police officer might because we have different role within the work environment. Mm -hmm. But we look at behaviors of concern and we start to use the most appropriate intervention. What, again, I would consider to be low-grade violence, still significant to the person experiencing, but, but low-grade as, as far as imminent fatality, um, the drug test is, is a very good first tool. Mm -hmm. So what we want people to do is, I think, when we look at human resources, they support the supervisor, they support management, and what they do is they gather the behaviors, and we don't just go down the violence path. We don't just go down the substance use path. We don't just go down the discipline path. We, we merge them all together. I think companies will be well served by having HR trained to go work with supervisors. Mm -hmm. Every time there is an issue that comes to HR, that goes up the management chain as disruptive, non-performing, uh, creating distress, always ask, is this something we can test? Mm -hmm. Rule it out, but, but always ask. Mm -hmm. and, and you don't have to drug test everybody, but we certainly need to ask, is this relevant? Mm -hmm. And so I think we can, we can empower our supervisors, we can train people to be willing to act more quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and we need to make sure that people realize to get somebody drug tested is, is not an invasion. It's, 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 uh, uh, drug testing for cause is extremely supported by the courts. Mm -hmm. we, we have to make sure people are trained. We need to make sure they're fair. Those, but, but that's what we should do anyways. Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, let's talk a little bit more about drug testing. Um, it's a concern for EHS professionals for a lot of different reasons, you know, the safety angle there, but many may not have considered this particular angle. So um, could you talk a little bit more about how does drug testing fit into a workplace violence prevention program? The testing that I'm, I'm going to support is when we test for cause. For cause. There is a reasonable basis to test. Mm -hmm. What we have to get our, our line supervisors more comfortable doing is realizing they're not expert in what substances are. And mm -hmm. we talk about substances. When I do training, we'll talk about alcohol versus meth versus the opioids. We, th those are interesting. But what we want them to focus on is you don't get somebody tested because I believe they're taking meth, for example. Mm -hmm. We get somebody tested because they're impaired. Mm. And a drug test is just a tool that helps us understand or get more information related to the observed impairment. We have to, as an organization, address impaired behavior. Mm. What we have to do is get supervisors to realize they understand impairment better than anyone else. Right. As smart as I am, as intact as my ego is, <laughs> I'm not nearly as good as a frontline supervisor identifying safe, effective, appropriate behavior in their industry. Mm. So what we start to do is we let supervisors, managers understand their job is to identify impairment. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Our job as an organization is to provide them tools to learn more about it. And drug testing is just a tool to help understand the observed impairment. A positive test, we go down one path. A negative test is still relevant. Mm. We go down a different path. So I think we need folks to understand uh, drug testing is not pejorative. When we look at testing for cause, as long as there's adequate training and, and mechanisms in place, mm-hmm. it's very accepted by the courts. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think we're very safe and appropriate going down that path. Okay, that's great. So all of these issues surrounding violence and drug use and drug testing, they, they touch upon many areas of a company. It's, uh, it's a safety concern, obviously, but it's also a human resources concern and a security concern. So do you have any recommendations for how professionals in these different departments can effectively communicate and coordinate to create a solid prevention efforts company-wide? Is there, is there generally one department that should take the lead in creating policy as well? Well, first, let me address the, the, the need to effectively communicate, to coordinate, sure. to that, that solid approach. Mm-hmm. We, we've used a term in the violence prevention field um, since 2001, following the World Trade Center bombings. There was mm-hmm. an FBI agent out of um, Phoenix who wrote just a, just a remarkably insightful memo who said, we knew that some of these people were, were not good people. We knew they were doing things that were inappropriate, but, quote, no one connected the dots. Mm. And that's what we have found in situation after situation. Generally, what we find is that workplace violence is never a surprise, mm. but there is that failure to connect the dots, that they may have a history of, of minor safety infractions. They have a history of filing... Uh, grievances and EEO complaints that just don't have merit. They have a history of creating disruption, but we don't connect the dots. Mm. So ultimately, safety is integral to this. Mm. All of these impact overall safety. Ultimately, though, I think it's going to be HR, human resources, personnel departments that that do coordinate, that Mm. take the lead. Because I think we train our HR folks to uh, collaborate, I hope, yeah. We, we train them to to um, uh, consult with, uh, act as internal consultants. Mm-hmm. I really like when there's an issue where, where a supervisor says, I don't know what I have. I don't know if it's drugs. I'm not really sure. I don't know if it's violence. He's not that bad. Mm-hmm. You know, he's kind of act. That's the best time to pull management and HR together. Mm-hmm. I want safety's voice at the table. They know the safety professionals have information about unsafe behaviors, about conflicts. And generally, I want their voice at the table. I'd like security at the table. Um, ultimately, I think HR is going to be the voice that brings them together, though, and, and breaks down the silos. Okay, great. So, um, if, if you could give just, if you had to pick just one impactful piece of advice to a safety professional who's looking to tackle this issue in his organization, what would that be? I think what we, there's different approaches. We historically, mm-hmm. uh, so I'm going to give a very s- simple answer long, and I apologize. But yeah, no problem. We, we, we look at the workplace violence. There is a lot of emotional resistance. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a, a utility that I did some work with in Southern California that had an employee murdered um, a couple other uh, coworkers. And, and I mm-hmm. remember talking to the head of security, and he said, you know, we never thought it could happen here because we're kind of like a family. Mm. 
one of the, the hardest things to do is to overcome this sense that it can't happen here mm. because we know substance abuse affects everyone's family. Mm-hmm. So I think sometimes what we do is we come in from the, you understand how substances affect people. We've all been impacted. We know this impacts our company. Our goal is not to become prohibitionists and, and undercover police detectives. We don't right. need to become dope cops. Mm-hmm. We don't need to become the, the, uh, the talk police, mm. but we need to comply with the EO. We don't need to get into telling people how to breathe and walk, but we can't have unacceptable aggressive behavior. I think what we say is the most important thing is to get past this notion of it can't happen here because we mm. know it happens. And then if we intervene appropriately, if we're successful, we can actually get a person back to healthy functioning if we intervene early enough. Right. If we deal with somebody when they're, quote, unquote, just pissed off all the time, mm. when you know we have to walk on eggshells around it, we can intervene meaningfully there. Mm. And maybe we don't have to deal with it when they assault somebody. Because I promise you, once the assault has occurred, there's no going back. People <laughs> yeah. lost their jobs. Their families are impacted. We've got a, a, a work group that doesn't trust management. Mm-hmm. Um, the costs are just the ripple effect is huge. Mm. When we intervene early, we have a chance of success. Well, that's great. That's that's great advice for a safety professional. So, th- before we sign off, do you have any last uh, sort of sneak peeks you'd like to give us of your upcoming talk at the 2019 Workplace Violence Prevention Symposium? Well. I will talk a little bit about uh, what I learned through law enforcement. I will Mm -hmm. talk a lot about how we translate that into the workplace. And what I think people will appreciate, I hope, Mm -hmm. is that this is not going to be an intellectual kind of an approach. It's it's a a nuts and bolts. Mm -hmm. It's a real world. Um, uh, Before I I took this current position at USC, I I spent uh, 30 years consulting with companies on setting up policies that actually work. Mm. And I think people appreciate that this is um, a nuts and bolts kind of an approach, but it has decades of experience and, and success. Well, that's fantastic. Well, we're really looking forward to your session. It's uh, certain to help safety, security, HR professionals consider some new angles for keeping their workplace safe. Uh, thanks very much again, Patrick, for taking the time to join us on EHS on Tap. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. And we also want to say thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. If you want to learn more from Patrick and additional workplace violence experts, be sure to register for the upcoming 2019 Workplace Violence Prevention Symposium taking place March 14th through 15th in San Antonio, Texas. Now seats are filling up fast. For more details, visit live.blr.com or you can click on the links and banners for the event that are appearing on this episode's EHS Daily Advisor webpage. And as always, we want to remind you to keep an eye out for new episodes of EHS on Tap, and keep reading the EHS Daily Advisor to stay on top of your safety and environmental compliance obligations, get the latest and best practices, and keep your finger on the pulse of all things related to the EHS industry. Until next time, this is Justin Skase for EHS on Tap.